This is 100 Days of Dante, a podcast journey through Dante's divine comedy, one canto at a time. Join us online at 100daysofdante.com. Let's read together. Canto 31 is a canto of transition. Here we move at last from the many ditches of Malibulge into the final frozen sinkhole of hell. With Dante and Virgil, we've been scrambling up and down over the nine ditches of fraud, that eighth circle since Canto 18. Only three cantos remain, where in the ninth circle we'll meet the arch traitors whose ponderous weight of sin forms the gravitational center of hell. To be honest, this canto isn't one I've paid a lot of attention to before. It is tempting to linger on the glamour of Ulysses' rhetoric in the eighth circle on the one side, or to rush forward to the pathos of the traitor Angolino in the other and skip over Canto 31. But how do we move from fraud to treachery? How do we move spatially between these circles? And what does that path look like spiritually? As with all of the Commedia and the life of virtue and vice, the way we accomplish something tells us a lot about what it is we are doing and its true nature. It is an eerie scene in Canto 31, because by now, hell is almost entirely dark and misty, deprived of the light and warmth of divine love. Through the darkness, Dante spies far off, dim and towering objects on the horizon. They look rather like battlements on a castle, reminding us of that previous city we encountered in Canto 31, the city of Dis, where the pilgrims moved from the circles of physical or sensual sins to encounter sins that involved an abuse of the good of the intellect. So at first sight, it seems like we are approaching the final citadel of hell, the interior tower of minds that have closed themselves off to the light of divine love. However, rather than ramparts on a battlement though, it turns out that the towers are giants and they aren't looming high on a wall that rises up, but rather half buried down against the wall of the last pit. The poet gives us a series of complicated measurements to convey the giant size. As fun as sleuthing out the math may be, by my calculations, they're about 70 feet tall. We've learned enough about reading the imagery of hell by now to know that the giant's physical size indicates something about their spiritual condition. After all, these are the giants who treacherously rebelled against Zeus and believed that their strength was superior even to that of the Almighty. Although in hell, there is no one circle devoted to the capital vice of pride, Dante suggests its presence in character after character. Nowhere is it more vividly embodied than in these giants, whose overweening desire for greatness led them to betray their maker and to deceive and undo themselves. If we turn to the third chapter of Baruch, found in the Septuagint books of scripture and translated into the Latin Vulgate Bible, we find a vivid account of these rebels. There we read, quote, there were the giants, those renowned men that were from the beginning of great stature, expert in war. The Lord chose them not, neither did they find the way of knowledge, therefore did they perish. And because they had not wisdom, they perished through their folly who hath gone up into heaven and taken wisdom and brought her down from the clouds? Who hath passed over the sea and found her and brought her 
preferable to chosen gold. There is none that is able to know her ways, nor that can search out her paths. This passage shows the folly of those who seem great in their own eyes and in their pride become foolish enough to try to take heaven by brute force. Divine wisdom, on the other hand, descends freely as a gift and makes himself small, small enough even for a manger. Dante would have heard this passage read out loud twice during the Christian liturgical year. It is read once during the evening mass on Holy Saturday, anticipating the Easter resurrection. And then again at the close of the Easter season at the Pentecost vigil mass. In each, wisdom and the word of God, unlike the giants, humbles himself to descend. Christ descends into hell to conquer death. In the Pentecost liturgy, the flame of the Holy Spirit depends upon poor fishermen. And of course, within the chronology of the Commedia itself, it is now very early in the morning on Easter Sunday, as Dante and Virgil make their final descent into hell's last sinkhole. Let's look more closely at the pilgrims' interactions with these rebels to learn more about the particular type of hubris that the giants embody. Like Ulysses before them, the giants' pride bears fruit in their use or misuse of language. The first giant that they encounter is Nimrod described as a mighty hunter before the Lord in Genesis 10. Dante follows the lead of patristic authors to give Nimrod the dubious credit of being the driving force behind the Tower of Babel, the extraordinary attempt of mortals to win their way to heaven by getting higher in the sky. Just as in the murky darkness, Dante mistook the giants themselves for towers, so Nimrod and his co-conspirators, with their intellects darkened by pride, mistook mere height for divinity. Not only did the effort fail, but in alienating themselves from God, the builders also cut themselves off from each other. Now Nimrod's speech is mere gibberish. He is, as translator and critic Robert Hollander notes, like the proverbial drunk at a New Year's Eve party, unable to understand or be understood. Even something as ordinary as speaking turns out to be impossible outside of divine order, whether the person realizes it or not. For words to communicate something to another person, there has to be a frame of reference beyond simply oneself. When one takes oneself as the measure of all things, all communication breaks down and becomes subjective, even on a human level. For Dante, then, each true speech can be a little Pentecost, overcoming the confusion and pride of Babel. At the edge of the pit, Virgil approaches the giant Antaeus and offers him the usual deal. Help my friend here get down and his words will make you immortal on earth. Antaeus, the least culpable of the giants, since he was born too late to rebel, is alone unchained, able to move and understand Virgil's words. He stretches out his hand and the pilgrims climb aboard his palm, while Antaeus, unable or unwilling to speak, silently lowers them down to the last floor of hell. Their wordless descent, gripped in the hands of pride, foreshadows for us the despair of those final cantos and the monstrous silence of Satan himself. We will meet representations of these giants once more when we walk on the first terrace of Mount Purgatory in Canto 12. There, their figures appear as marble images carved in relief into the very wall of the mountain. Again, they will serve as a warning against pride, 
but now incorporated into God's providential plan for salvation and healing. Thank you for reading Dante's Divine Comedy with us. Continue the journey at 100daysofdante.com. 100 Days of Dante is brought to you by the Baylor University Honors College with support from the Torrey Honors College at Biola University, the Templeton Honors College at Eastern University, the University of Dallas, Whitworth University, and Gonzaga University in Florence.